Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. And so we're looking at these eight statements that Jesus made, these Beatitudes. Early in his ministry, he made them, and it describes someone who would call themselves a, a Christian, a citizen of the kingdom of God. So each week, we're just looking at one of those statements, and we're asking a very simple question. Is this true about me? Is this true about me? Because you know what something is by the kind of characteristic traits that it has. And if I would call myself a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, if I would call myself a Christian, then this is something that should be true about my heart posture and how I interact. I have two older siblings and one younger sibling. My sister's four years older than me, and then my brother's two years older than me, and then my younger brother's five years older than me. But I remember the feeling I had when I was in fifth grade and my brother and sister who were in junior high and then in high school, that their life patterns were starting to change and they were now given more permission and more freedom to go out and do things. So they would go out and go with friends and hang out at the you know, like at the Red Barn, or they'd go to Dairy Queen together with friends, and they would be out late, staying out later than I was, and I was at home like an elementary student. I was watching my brother and sister do these fun things, hang out with their friends, go to youth group, and I remember how that made me feel. It made me feel like an outsider looking in, and I would ask my parents, could I just tag along with them? Could I go to youth group? No, you're not old enough for that. And it created this feeling inside of me. I'm an outsider and I'm looking in and I know the way that it made me feel. It made me feel bad. And so then what that did is that experience informed my response to as I grew older and I would see younger children that were left out of things. And it changed the way that I interacted with them. My experience informed my response. Maybe you've had this kind of thing as you grew up as, as well. Uh, maybe you were one of those kids like me where you would show up and you were new at a school and you would sit down at the lunch table and you would be all by yourself and you just wanted anyone, anyone to come sit next to you so that you didn't feel like you were a, a one-eyed monster that no one wanted to be next to. And so you would just hope and you would pray, please, someone come sit with me. Risk, risk what you have to risk so that I don't have to be alone. I feel alone. I am alone. And then maybe someone sat next to you. Maybe someone didn't. But you know what that feels like to be in this position where you want someone else to do something for you, to be generous with you. Maybe, maybe it wasn't a lunch table, but you could probably tell me a story. If we took time, you guys could all tell me stories of something you experienced when you were growing up. I know it's hard to tell with this chiseled physique, but in elementary school, I wasn't that great at sports. In that age range, two things determined how cool you are. What kind of sneakers you had and were you good at sports? Jason's shaking his head. He knows what I'm The really cool kids, like I would, my mom and dad would go shopping at Payless, so I would have like Voight shoes. Remember Voight shoes, right? The really cool kids had Nikes, and if you were super rad, you had Reebok pumps. They were the stuff, you know? Now, so your shoes was one thing, but the other thing was how good you were at sports. 
And the thing that determined your social ranking on sports is if you had a, a time at gym or on recess where they would assign two captains to be over a team and they would put everyone in a line and they would say, hey, pick your players. The absolute worst thing was if you got picked last. You're sitting there and there's like, okay, there's five people left and now there's four people left, there's three. Just please let me not be the last one that got picked. Anything but that. Chances are you had an experience like that and then as you grow older, you find that the experience starts to inform how you interact with others. You see someone who's sitting all by themselves at the lunch table, someone who's about to be picked last for something, and it, it draws back to mind, I have this experience, I felt what that felt like, and it informs how you respond. In truth, our feelings are very, very powerful things. They really steer our lives, don't they? They guide our decisions and our habits you may or may not do what you think, but you will always do what you feel. And I think that's why Jesus gave us this next beatitude, where he said this in Matthew 5, verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. The merciful, it means to consider someone at their point of need to be concerned with them when you see them because you can identify what they're going through and what experience they're walking through. You've been there. You've been alone at the lunch table. You've been the last to be picked. You know what it's like to wear Voight shoes when everyone else has Nike shoes on. And so when you see someone else going through something, you're concerned with them at their point of need. Mercy at its core is not just an intellectual understanding about someone that needs something. It's a feelings thing. It's something that you feel on the inside. Mercy is compassion plus action. Compassion plus action. You feel and it automatically means that you're going to step in and you're going to do something for that person that you can identify with. I see you. You're all alone at the table. I've been there before. I know what that feels like. It's awful. So I'm not just going to feel pity for you. I'm not just going to have compassion. I feel bad for you, but I'm going to step into having action for this other person. Compassion plus action. And Jesus says, Jesus says that people that operate with mercy, when they operate with compassion plus action, they are fortunate. They have figured something out. The person who responds to the forces in their lives, to the people that they interact with, with mercy, Jesus would say that they are blessed. They figured something out. They, when they operate with mercy like that, it's going to make life better for them, and it's going to make them better at life. Jesus so cared about this that later on in his ministry, he told a story, a parable. And I want to spend some time there this weekend in Matthew chapter 18. He tells a parable because he's responding to his disciples. His disciples said, Lord, when someone sins against me, when someone does something wrong against me, how many times should I be compassionate towards them? 
How many times should I be merciful towards them? The law told him that, like the law of the Pharisees would say, would say hey, we're going to be very virtuous. We're going to forgive someone. We're going to have compassion for someone that's hurting. We're, we're going we're to be merciful to someone even that did something wrong to you. We're going to do that seven times. And so Peter says, God, how many, uh, Jesus, how many times should I be compassionate like that? Should I be compassionate seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven times. 77 times. And then he tells this story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So why did the servants have an account? I I don't know. Uh, This isn't like chattel slavery like we understand it. It would be more like indentured servitude. But whatever this servant did, he racked up quite a bill. I don't know if he spent the money. I don't know if he like had gambling debts or whatever it was. He borrowed something, but it was time the master showed up and said, hey, let's settle our accounts. And then verse 24, it says, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Some translations will say this. They'll say 10,000 talents. And a talent represented... 20 years wages. So I brought out my calculator and I did a little bit of calculation on this. So 10,000 talents would be equal, if you take 10,000 talents, it would be equal to 200,000 years of labor. And if you average that someone would make $50,000, which is maybe meager, I don't know, but $50,000 a year, that means that this servant had racked up a bill of $10 billion. And I look at that and I think, how on earth do you spend that much money? Like what kind of gambling debts do you have? That's incredible. How reckless do you have to be with someone else's money that you incur that kind of a bill. I don't really think, though, that's Jesus' point, though. I think it's such an outrageous amount of money that Jesus is just saying it's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. The point is this, that there was no way that this guy could pay off his master. It just was not going to happen. There's no amount of saying like uh, Jim Carrey did in Dumb and Dumber, Hey, I know I bought a Lamborghini with your money, but here's an IOU. It's 150000 Hold on to that one. It's going to be worth something someday. There's no amount of IOUs that's ever going to scratch a dent in $10 billion. Jesus is saying there's a bill that this person could not pay. How did, how, how could he possibly deal with this kind of liability? The only way, the only way was for he, him to pay with his very life. How did the master respond? Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had was to be sold to repay the debt. Not just his life, his wife's life, his children's life, the rest of their lives, they were gonna be paying off bad decisions that their dad had. Which isn't it true that sometimes those things that we deal with in our lives, we can look back and we can say, Dad, I wish you would have made a different choice. Mom, I wish you would have stuck it out. Our actions have repercussions beyond 
our years. It seems harsh to us that they would all be sold off, but it's this idea of a debtor's prison. We don't really have that, but it was common then. And so when they're in prison, they really couldn't have even paid off the debt either. So it was a lifetime and a lifetime and a lifetime of slavery. So what did the guy do? Well, what would you do? He did what we would do. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt, and he let him go. He had pity plus action. He had compassion plus action. This master is within his complete rights to be judgmental (laughs) of the servant. He was within what was lawful for him to put him in shackles, carry him away, to demand that he was right. He was just if he would demand payment. But instead, he saw compassion on this person in their time of need. And he changed his response. As I was thinking about this whole passage this week, what kept coming to my mind was that this person was treating this slave in a manner that he did not deserve. He was treating him with the kind of compassion and love and care that he would treat a son or a daughter or a brother or a friend. And so the term that kept coming to my mind was this, that he was being relationally generous. He was generous to treat this person who didn't deserve it like he was someone that he wasn't. Can you imagine... Can you imagine as he received this mercy, this undeserved kindness, just the elation that the servant would have felt in this time? Like his life was forfeit. He was going to jail. His kids were going to be bitter at him for the rest of his life. He would probably never see them. And now he calls upon the master. He sees the relational generosity. And you would think at this point he would be like Ebenezer Scrooge on on Christmas morning. Bob Cratchit, I know I've been mean to you, but today I'm going to go and I'm going to have Christmas at your house. Tiny Tim, grab the biggest goose you can find. Here we go. We're going to have a feast. Heart overflowing with generosity to others because he had experienced this thing and it would change his heart. He would respond differently. Unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. A hundred silver coins, that's equivalent to about a hundred days wages, each of those coins. So that would be a couple, 10, 15 grand. That's how much he was owed. He grabbed him. He began to choke him. He said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Doesn't that sound familiar? Be patient with me. I will pay it back. You'd expect him at this time to remember. I can remember. Wait, I was in this situation not long ago. I needed mercy and I called out for it and it was given freely to me. That that would inform how he would respond. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison 
until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged. No doubt were they outraged. They just saw what had gone down. And so what do they do? They go and they tell their master everything that happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Justifiably, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Jesus concludes, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Can I just tell you that as I've been reading and studying this passage, there are two things that are deeply troubling to me when I read this. First, it's deeply troubling the incredulous behavior of this wicked servant. Isn't that what Jesus, though, was trying to communicate with the people that were listening to this at that point in time? Peter had asked this question, how many times do I need to be gracious and kind to someone else? How many times do I need to be merciful to someone in need? How many times do I need to forgive them? Are there rational limits to how relationally generous I'm supposed to be to someone else? I mean, when they do wrong, one wrong thing to me, I'm gonna forgive them. But what if they do two or three or four or even up to seven times they do something wrong to the? Do I still need to forgive them? Could you imagine how foolish it would be, how absurd it would be for the servant to go and ask the master, hey, master, thank you. Thanks for eliminating my debt. That was great. Thanks for wiping away the $10 billion of debt. I've got this person that owes me a couple thousand dollars. You think it's okay if I hold him to the fire on this? Do I really need to forgive that kind of debt? And I think the master would turn to him and say, how can you so quickly forget the mercy that you've been shown? And I think that's Jesus' point. Jesus is saying, when we stand before God, there is this unimaginable debt It's not something that we can handle. There's no IOU we can write that's gonna take care of it. Nothing less than paying with our very lives will possibly deal with it. And so Jesus shows us something that's so beautiful about the heart and the mind of God and that's he wants to show us mercy. The Bible would tell us he is rich and mercy, and loving kindness, that he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. That is the heart, that is the mind of God. He is relationally generous with us. He wants to pour out his mercy on us. He has compassion plus action. He wants and has pity upon us. He has pity upon us because He knows what it's like to be you and me. When I was in high school, there was a song, what if God were one of us? Just a slob like one of us. 
Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus lived a life like we lived, that he was tempted, he was made angry, he knows what it's like to be betrayed, to have people fail him, to, to be hungry. Hebrews tells us that we have Jesus who can be our representative and he has pity on us. He understands what it's like to have someone who treats you improperly. He understands what it's like to be assaulted. He understands what it's like for someone to badmouth you. And so we don't have a God that's unable to sympathize with us. Instead, he can sympathize with us in our weakness. And so what it means is that we can go to the throne room of God freely and openly, and he can say, you know what? I know what it's like to be you. Because I was alone at the lunch table. And there were days when I was picked last. And I see you, and I care about you, the hymn, It Is Well, describes God's mercy this way. It says, For Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the presence of mercy should compel us to action. The presence of mercy that we experience should compel us. It should be the weight that we feel of our own indebtedness. We were that servant. We owed a debt that we could not pay, and Christ paid a debt that he did not owe. And when we experience that, it informs our actions. It, it moves us forward. It compels us to have mercy towards other people. This story shows us that, that the presence of mercy compels us, but the equal truth is this, that the absence of mercy should also offend us. In this story, it offends us. It offended Jesus' listeners, and frankly, it offends God as well when he, he doesn't see mercy flowing from us. And this, is, this offense to God, this offense that we experience Jesus' conclusion is that second thing that just troubles me. This is how he concludes it. He says, Then the master called in the servant, You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on the fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay all that he owed. This haunts me. Listen to what Jesus says. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It troubles me. It bothers me. But isn't this what the Beatitude says too? It says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. It's a sobering thought that the absence of mercy leads to a presence of judgment in our lives. I think it's so troubling to me because if I'm honest, I don't always want to forgive someone when they've wronged me. I want to hold that power over them. I want to keep them indebted to me until they can 
pay it back either literally or maybe I'm going to withhold my love and my care and affection for them or maybe just maybe I can't do anything to them but this is how I think I'm going to hang on to that offense in my heart and in my head and I'm going to play it over and over again and trapping them in some sort of weird time loop of my own bitterness and trapping them into a cave and a prison in my own heart And Jesus would say this. He would say that if we want the mercy of God towards me, I don't need to just be willing to forgive someone. I need to actually do it. There's a dissonance as I look at this that I experience as I... Try to understand what Jesus is even saying. So if I don't show mercy, I'm not going to get any from God. It's a dissonance because of bedrock Christian doctrines. They tell us that our forgiveness with God doesn't come from my performance. It's not anything I do, but it comes only by trusting in Jesus Christ. Is Jesus telling us that the way that we earn God's mercy is by first being merciful with others? How... How do we understand all of this? I think the bottom line that Jesus is getting to is that you can't claim to be right with God while you refuse to forgive someone else. That kind of thing is what a citizen of the world would do. But a citizen of the kingdom of God looks at what God has done for them, feels the weight of that mercy on their lives. Recalls, wow, God, you've forgiven me of that. I'm not gonna hold on to this for someone else. I'm gonna be merciful and forgiving. And Jesus looks at a person who does that, who has mercy on someone else, and he says, congratulate that person. They've, they've got something figured out in their life. They are blessed. They are fortunate. It's going to make life better for them, and it's going to make them better at life. They've learned a secret, and the secret is this, that there is freedom for them in forgiveness. There is might in mercy. Blessed are the merciful. You'll be blessed because you're not holding someone else's sin against them, even though you could, even though you have the right to do that. You don't hold it against them because your sin's weren't held against you. This is truly freedom to not be bound by someone else's failures, someone else's hurts against you. This is a blessed and a happy life because you're not being dictated by what someone else has done to you. You are truly and really free. Jesus says this, he says, if you hold your faults to other people, you're never going to be happy. You'll always be discontented. You'll always be disconnected from others. Why? Because there's never going to be a lack of people around you that mess up and sin against you and, and have some sort of fault in their life. And you guys know this. You guys know this. When you create that prison in your heart, we'll just call that bitterness. And we think, you know what, I'm going to hold on to this and I'm going to play that over and over again the way that my brother hurt me. I'm going to play this over and over again. And every time I play it on, I'm just going to tighten the screws on them. I'm going to withhold love or care from them. 
we know that it doesn't hurt them. Who does it hurt? It hurts us. We know that's the effect of bitterness. Embracing mercy on someone else is the beginning of living life free from bitterness. It's getting that dragon off of your back. Can you imagine a life where you would be free from bitterness and resentment? Imagine being free from someone else owning that piece of your heart because of what they did to you. Could you imagine a life free from indifference to others? Do you know that the opposite of love is not hate or even anger? It's indifference. So when we say, you're dead to me, that's the worst thing that we could say to them. That's the opposite of loving them. Can you imagine a life where you're free from that? There's no amount of money that could ever buy that kind of freedom. And Jesus says, happy are those, who, happy are those people who give exactly what they don't deserve relationally. Happy are those who are not seeking revenge, who don't hold grudges. Happy are those people who put away bitterness, who are not wanting to, to be paid back from someone in their past. Because you know this, have you ever met a happy, bitter person? Have you ever met a happy person that holds a grudge? Have you ever met a happy person who's waiting to be paid back from that thing that happened to them? But what you have met is this. You've met someone who's been extraordinarily mistreated and they've endured things that you wouldn't have even wished upon your enemy. And somehow they've emerged on the other side of that and they're fine. They're happy. They're joyful. Here's what I know to be true, and it's kind of cliche, but I don't think it's any less significant. And it's this, that forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Once you've tasted mercy, you don't dare forget how beautiful it was and how significant it was. And that compels you to extend mercy and grace to someone else in your life. I remember when Jennifer and I were first married, like a knucklehead, I did something pretty stupid and I hurt her. And as she was processing this and we were talking and I brought it to her, I remember her wrestling with it. And eventually she came to me and she said, with all that God has forgiven me of, how can I not extend forgiveness to you. Forgiven people forgive people. Freely you have been given. Freely you have received. Freely you should give to others. Now I do want to make a, a delicate note. I don't want to for any amount of time stand up here and act like I know the depths of hurts that exist in this room and outside of it. And there are people that have been abused and assaulted and I am not going to diminish that one little bit. I think it's important to know that there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. That you can forgive someone, you can release an indebtedness and not entrust yourself to them.
Forgiveness is to be granted, but trust has to be earned. And here's what I know to be true. There might be people that are out of your lives and they're never gonna have the opportunity to earn back your trust. Maybe they never should earn back your trust. Maybe they're, they're not alive anymore and there's not an opportunity to reconcile something. You can still step into forgiving and releasing that person from that prison of bitterness in our hearts. The question that I have to ask, and it's kind of obvious, but I don't think it's any less important as this. Have, have you experienced the mercy and the forgiveness of God? Because you can't give what you ain't already have, what you haven't received. You can't extend what you haven't experienced. If you haven't, the same solution for you is the solution for the servant. It's simply to say, hey, there's, there's sin in my life and I'm not even aware of it. Like, like the psalmist would say, forgive my hidden faults. Like there's so, so many things that I have done that I'm not proud of and you just fall on your feet and you say, God, I have nothing but your mercy. God is waiting to dole it out upon you. He is patient and he is kind and he is merciful. Maybe you have experienced that. Then the question that we need to wrestle with is this. Do I show others the same kind of mercy that I've received? Am I a person that holds on to grudges? And I'm gonna get even, so help me. I'm gonna get them back. I'm gonna shut them out of my life. Do I show others the same kind of mercy that I've received? Let me say it this way. Is there someone in your life that you've been withholding mercy and forgiveness from? You're in the position of holding it over them. They've done something wrong to you. You have the legal right. You have the, you're just and right in taking action. Are you withholding forgiveness and mercy from them? We just need to be aware that there's that sober warning from Jesus. What would it look like if your life were free from that? What would it look like if your life were free from, from that bitterness? How many more hours of sleep would you get when you weren't playing tape over and over again? How much more joy would there be in visiting your in-laws or seeing the family over Christmas or going back to work? You know, mercy is expensive and forgiveness is expensive and it always costs something. When you forgive someone else, when the masters forgave the servant, he was saying there was a debt and I'm going to absorb it. I'm gonna take that cost upon me. It's the same thing with us. When we choose to forgive, we say, I'm gonna absorb that and I'm not going to retaliate. Mercy is expensive, but we can't lose the sight of what God has done for us because he absorbed for us what we had done. To him. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the relationally generous because they've seen the relational generosity of God. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who have compassion plus action. Blessed are the pity plus action because they will receive mercy. It will free them from a life of bitterness. It will allow them to be better at life and make life better for them. It will mean that there's, they're not gonna be slave to bitterness in their heart when they're done wrong by someone else. There's a, a powerful example of this occurring a few years ago. 
with a gentleman named Larry Nasser. He was the coach for the gymnasts who had tragically and brutally and wrongly assaulted 150 girls. Like, like there's, like there's the person who cuts you off in the parking lot and you're like, yeah, I can step into mercy. I don't even know what mercy looks like in those kinds of situations. <laughs> and yet there was a lady named Rachel Den Hollander. She was one of the first people, the first public accusers to testify in court. And she's an amazing person. She's married now. She has a daughter of her own. I want to take a moment to just read about two minutes of what she said in that courtroom. It's a part of a much longer discourse. But when she spoke, she in no way diminished what happened to her, to anyone else. If anything, she brought more gravity to it. But this is how she responded. She said, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible, she's speaking to to the offender, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it's on that basis that I appeal to you If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry... If you've read the Bible you carry, you would know forgiveness doesn't come from doing good as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth of what you've done in all its utter depravity with, and with horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry The Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and to be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you, and should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy when none should be found. And there it will be for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend it to you as well. What an amazing articulation of mercy, of hope, of goodness, that none of us are too far gone. But it's also the challenging reminder for us of what it looks like to extend mercy to someone we might feel like doesn't deserve it. So the question I think that we all need to ask ourselves is this, Am I a merciful person? Not am I right, not am I just, not am I entitled to this, but am I a merciful person? 
I am more convinced than ever that the only way to that is through this first step, that the only way to become a merciful person is to accept the mercy that's freely available for us, to say yes to that mercy, to remember the weight of our own indebtedness, and to remember that in Christ it is forgiven, that when he sees us, we are seen with relational generosity like the brothers and sisters that we don't deserve to be. And then when we remember that, it empowers. What we've experienced empowers us to step in to forgiving our ex-husband, our ex-wife, that landlord, the brother, the sister, the mother-in-law. Because of all that I've been forgiven, how could I do anything but offer you forgiveness? I don't need to trust you again. There may or may not be reconciliation, but I'm not gonna let you have that prison of my heart. I'm not gonna let it fester into a root of bitterness in my life. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Can we pray together? Can we pray together? I realize this is all pretty heavy stuff (laughs) as I look at your faces. And it is. It is because sin is heavy. And when we wrong others, it's heavy. And when they wrong us, it's significant. And we don't make light of any of that. Mercy doesn't say it's okay What mercy does, it says there's a way. Because I know what I've been forgiven of, and so I'm gonna freely give that to others. And how good and how sweet is it to remind ourselves that when we stare down that that soul-crushing guilt that sometimes can be there, That's where the gospel meets us. That the person to our left or right may not see all of the wrongs that we've done, but Jesus has seen every wayward thought, every wayward action. And he offers forgiveness and mercy. And I just want to declare that that's available for you here in this space and maybe, just maybe, as I sing this next song, and if you want to sing with me, you can, or you just stay where you're at, whatever it is. If there's that thought, that person, that unresolved relationship, that, that person that has that piece of your heart, and you're playing the tape over and over again, that you would let this wash over you, and would you just go to the throne room of God and say, God, empower me to forgive and be merciful as you have been merciful with me.